todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Sean Soho, the lead singer of Crash Midnight, a five-piece band based in Las Vegas. They've gained quite a following due to their old-school, straight-ahead, hard rock music that's in the tradition of bands like Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith, but with a touch of late 70s punk. I want to talk to Sean about the evolution of the band, sharing a stage with acts like Seven Dust and The Pretty Reckless, and to find out what's coming up. So let's get him on the line. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. No, it's good to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you on. And I did my research a bit and saw that you're from Boston. Um, you know, to paraphrase Brad Delp, <laughs> Crash Midnight was just another band out of Boston. But I'd love to get the rundown on how you formed the band there and what made you guys ultimately choose Las Vegas to settle. So uh, Boston was really kind of a, I guess, a move out of necessity or desperation. We were uh, just as all the guys that formed the band, which was myself, um, my younger brother, Bo, who was our bass player at the time, and and Alex, who has been since he was 18 and now uh, is still our, our lead guitarist. We were all pretty um, jaded by what was on the radio. It was, you know, the, the mid to late 2000s, and there just wasn't anything that we wanted to listen to. Back then, there was a lot of just angry industrial rock coming out of uh, a lot of what we call New Hampshire rock. And there just wasn't anything getting booked in the clubs or on the radio that we wanted to hear. So we said, fuck it. If nobody else is going to do it, we'll do it. So there's almost been uh, two completely different eras of the band. Uh, we we were in Boston for about eight years. We got signed to a subsidiary of uh, Universal out there, did a couple of North American tours. Um, and the Boston music scene was just, it, it was tough. There's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of politics going on where um, most of the clubs would only book 21 plus nights so you'd you know for a college town that pretty much rules out everybody but the older juniors and and the seniors yeah and um you know boston buses in a lot of really smart people to go to those schools but um we found that a lot of those people then move right back out of the city after they graduate so we had a 
a really cascading, um, you know, uh, to just a flow of, of our fan base where you'd start in September and you build it all the way up by the time it was the spring and they left, it would drop back down and you'd start all over again. So we were getting really tired of that. And, um, and just the, the scene was a little bit more, well, I should say a lot more catered towards the hipster type of crowd. And that just wasn't really us, you know, we're straight ahead, you know, blues bass, hard rock with, um, you know, with a lot of punk influences in it, and it just didn't have any place there. And we were on those tours we uh, met a band called Adelita Sway that we were out with um, on the the last run of the tours that we did with Live Nation, and you know they uh, their singer Rick was originally from Philadelphia and then was was out west here, and he was just like you know guys get your get your asses out of out of Boston. It was in the middle of the worst winter on record in Boston, so you didn't have to convince us too hard, <laughs> you know. And he was like, yeah, you know, you can't shovel sunshine out here, so you might as well come on out, and and we did. You know, his advice was, it's either going to kill you guys or you guys are going to be great out here. So, you know, Vegas does different things to different people, but it was a uh, it was a really good move for us. Yeah, I'm so glad that you did. I moved to Las Vegas in 2020 and you guys were one of the first live acts that I saw during the kind of during the pandemic. And it was really great to see you guys um, and encouraging for the Las Vegas music scene, which really is pretty great. Um, but I'm wondering now, who is in the current lineup of the band? And did most of them come from Boston or did you meet some folks here? No. So we took a um, we took about a year to really solidify ourselves out here. At first, it was just me. And we were working on um, getting my brother Bo out here. And due to some life circumstances, he actually ended up having to hang it up. Uh, but Alex moved out here. So, and Alex and I have been in, in this band together since we were kids. So he was, I think, 18 years old when I met him. Um, and we've been together for way too long at this point, but he moved <laughs> out here and we set about a, a bunch of different, you know, lineups trying to get this band together. We tried to drag some guys out that had been, you know, that had gone on tour with us uh, during some of the Live Nation stuff and, you know, to some other people that we had in our, our networks from back East. And it just wasn't really happening. We figured... You know, it'd be a lot easier to get people that were established out here. And it's it, it was a different scene when we first moved out here, too, because, I mean, we were when it was about like 20, the end of 2014, I think. Okay. Um, and when we first moved out here, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, just grassroots like rock and roll stuff going on. Um, we actually had a lot of trouble even trying to find bands that that really fit our sound to do co-bills with. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was it was a, it was definitely different. It's changed a lot since then. Um, but, uh, we ended up just slowly, you know, by attrition, finding one person after the next. And, uh, the first guy to really stick was, was Drake, who was our, um, rhythm guitarist for a while. And we went through so many bass players, um, that eventually he said, fuck it, I'll, I'll play bass then, you know, <laughs> he was tired of teaching new people <laughs> parts. So he moved over to bass. And then uh, uh, he had a friend that he had gone to high school with uh, named Donovan Tryon, who was a fantastic guitarist. And and so Donovan came in as our, our second guitarist. And then Donovan had a close friend uh, who was a drummer. And for the last year and a half, we've had uh, Mitchell Terranova on the drums. And, and this kid is very much like a John Bonham disciple and, you know, just really cool. You know, if, if, uh, if we didn't tell him to get dressed, he'd be showing up in flip-flops kind of, you know, laid back guy. <laughs> Um, but he's brought so much to, to the band, um, especially just as from a consistency standpoint, the kid's reliable as hell. And, 
you know, and, and just having all those guys in there and having the, the same lineup now for, for a good year and a half. Um, and the, the majority of the the guys haven't been in there for over, over about three years now has, um has been really good for us. And I think it's, it's like you, I, I can't believe you moved out here in the middle of the pandemic. That's a wild time to move. Right. But yeah. <laughs> that, that was kind of when we were solidifying everything again out here. And, and it's, uh, it, it turned out to be a really weird experience going through that. Of course, I think every artist went mm-hmm. through a really weird experience there, but this, it ended up coming out um, great for us because we got a time to really get everybody together and all on the same page of the band and then hit the ground running once everything opened up. Yeah. Yeah. It really shows. And I, you have some incredible originals, which we'll talk about later, but I also really enjoy the covers in your set. You often do something by the stones or Led Zeppelin and, Obviously, you do love those bands, but um, who were some of your influences when you were first starting out and kind of what made you choose music as your profession? Uh, I guess it depends on how far back you go. Brad Delph was actually one of the the first guys that I fell in love with, you know, the vocals on. And I remember spending hours and hours trying to sing as high as he could. And God, he was amazing, wasn't he? Yeah, eventually, um, you know, I got pretty close there and that that developed a lot of high range stuff. Uh, you could pretty much from our sound, you know, tell that we've got the the Zeppelin, Stones, Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, that kind of vibe. Um, but a lot of uh, a lot of the underlying stuff, especially especially like lyrically for me, comes from some of that 70s and early 80s punk uh, seeing everybody from like, you know, Dead Boys, New York Dolls and then Johnny Thunders going out on his own with um you know, we left them, Hanoi Rocks, um, Iggy Pop. We kind of, we, we picked from everybody though. I mean, there's like old Alice Cooper stuff that, you know, we've definitely been influenced heavily by, or, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll take something from Bob Seger or Cindy Lauper if it serves the song, you know? So there's been a, we have a pretty wide palette. Um, and I think uh, Alex draws on some even older blues stuff that I've gotten into more now that I inherited like about a thousand records from my, my late uncle. So we've got a lot of blues and jazz stuff that comes in and you just, you'll, you'll find something anywhere. Wow. That's great to have so much to draw from. Um, now, did you choose music as a profession or was it something that just kind of organically happened? Uh, I'd say I got into music for the same reason. A lot of people get into music, a lot of guys trying to, trying to get a girl or, or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, right? got into it for all the right reasons. Uh, um, but it ended up being something that, that, uh, that gave me direction after some other stuff in life just didn't pan out. And, and I think it, it became a kind of a, a sanctuary to, to, to go into. And that was where I could direct all my energy. And, um, you know, I can't imagine, I can't imagine I never would have met my wife and never would have, you know, been together with these guys, uh, had I chosen something else, something a little more safe, maybe. And I'm wondering if you have, um, any memorable moment or a piece of advice maybe from your early days as a performer that had a significant impact on your career or your life? Well, we've got a, we've got no end of, of um, interesting stories, I think from the early days. And a lot of those make their way into the material for, for our songs, especially the, uh, the first album and some of the, um, uh, some of the songs on the, on the last eight singles or so that we released. But I think uh, I was talking about this um, recently in another interview, too, that it was just, you know, I think what what really changed the direction of this band and our mindset um, kind of boils down to uh, experiences we had just before we moved from Boston. I think we had, um, you know, I I really remember playing a place uh, right outside of Fenway Park in Boston called Copperfields. 
and we had we had sold a ton of tickets to this to, to the show and it was it was packed i don't know if it was sold out but it was it was pretty damn close and i remember walking away there with only a couple hundred bucks and you know finding out that you know the promoter you know in quotation marks walked away with you know about a grand yeah. and and that was just another reason that we got out of out of the um the boston scene but it was you know, there, there were so many of these people that call themselves promoters that do nothing other than just call up five bands, put them up on a bill and then take a, a massive cut. And I remember that really sticking with us that, you know, so many, so many artists in general think that somebody else is going to go do the job for you, or they're going to, you know, it, it, you, they're going to hand off the responsibility to other people. And as soon as you start doing that, everybody starts taking a cut or a bigger cut, or, you know, we had a couple other promoters that, you know, oversold a show. So even people that had bought tickets couldn't get in and that was a whole huge thing and i remember getting like a huge fight with them and telling them i wasn't giving them any of their cut of their money and it was a whole big deal but i, I think a lot of those experiences um that and you know our label um at the time who ended up going through a bunch of not for <laughs> not for a lack of effort on their part but i just don't think they were they were prepared financially or even you know with the, the experience to know what to do with us you know, that, that they, um, you know, they came up a day late and a dollar short for everything on, on those, uh, live nation tours where we didn't have radio until after the tour. <laughs> we only had press wow. halfway through the tour. I don't even think we had our, our, uh, album for sale until maybe the last couple of dates. God, so, you're kidding. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just a, a calamity and all those experiences together, um, really taught us that if you want to do something, you have to take complete accountability yourself. You got to take accountability for your own fan base. You know, it's on you to earn them. It's on you to figure out, you know, how to make it in this industry and not just wait for, you know, daddy with a checkbook to show up. And that's what we did. And that's, um, that was a big thrust of how we staffed the band out here. We made sure that everybody, you know, was, was a, a person that was responsible enough. I mean, it's, it sounds weird because we're sex, drugs, rock and roll band, but at least they were responsible in the, the right avenues to, um, you know, to be there the next day and to show up to the shows. And, uh, and I think by us taking the bull by the horns, so to speak on, on that, you know, we got to be very good friends with um, uh, pretty much all the booking agents out here and we went directly through them and they're great guys. And that's easier on them than dealing with agents. Uh, we got to be very good friends with a lot of the club owners and then just throughout that, the radio guys out here. Like I think when you establish your own, um, your own network of, of solid people that are advocates for the band. And then also you're not worried about where the next paycheck's coming from, then you're free in this industry and you don't have to be accountable to anybody, any, you know, agent, manager, record label. If you can do your own thing, then you can record whatever you want. And then it's on, it's on the strength of what you're doing. That's really the biggest impact that that's had on our careers, just realizing that we need to be completely self-sufficient if we wanted to do things the way that, that we envisioned them. Well, uh, there are so many great original rock bands in Las Vegas now, but from what you said a few minutes ago, it seems like that's a change for the better. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you describe the current energy and the feeling of that Las Vegas music scene from your perspective as a musician? Sure. I mean, I, there have been a lot of um, a lot of people that we met over the last maybe five to, to seven years or so out here. Uh, that maybe weren't even in a band before or they were in a cover band or or something like that or a tribute act. And uh, just by us all kind of hanging out, um, 
we would have a lot of talks with a, with a lot of the bands out here about, you know, what it, what it really takes in order to make it, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to try to get a fan base, what that actually means that you can't just book a ton of shows and play for five people. Like if you have five people showing up to your shows, stop booking shows and go meet more people, you know, and really yeah. try to give them. And that's something that, that Boston taught us because Boston was a lot tougher to earn a fan base in just because of the climate out there, um, you know, just the, the type of people that were out there. Um, and and out here we found it be it was it was so much more receptive, you know, to the straight ahead rock and roll style. Um, so we we definitely I think we we helped some people, um, you know, uh, kind of get the cheat code to to skip a couple of the the formative years that that we had to beat our heads against the wall. Um, but we've had there's been a lot of bands that are coming up. There's there's a pretty cool um, like underground, uh, maybe even under eighteen plus uh, kind of seen out here that's doing these house parties these you know warehouses and that kind of stuff and you know we're we're kind of we don't really play those kind of things anymore although they were a lot of fun when we were younger um but it's great to see that that type of stuff because that's going to spill over into the clubs and it's it's you know just maybe a year or two away from the tipping point of all those kids you know having a the wherewithal to, to get their way into the clubs and then you've got a lot of other bands that are that are taking a little bit of that hopefully a little bit of that lead and you know, and going out and meeting people and, and trying to actually really create a scene. Cause until you have a scene, you, you just, you know, you're a one man army out there and that's just, it's tough to do as a band if you're the only one in town. Yeah, I imagine. So, um, well, how do you find the balance um, sort of of the creative vision that you have for your music? And then also there's a collaborative nature of being in a band, um, but you are the lead vocalist, the front man. So how does that all mesh together? I think when we, first started out the band um there was a little bit more stranglehold you know on creative control and stuff like that and there was it was always from the beginning myself um my brother and and alex uh that would kind of have the push pull but it, it was that it was kind of relegated to that you know it was it was really like i would come with a song idea maybe halfway written or whatever and then they kind of you know rip it up and bangle it up until it sounded like us um but we we kind of kept that very tight um, just between the three of us. And then when Bo uh, left the band, you know, that opened up a, a void, I think, in the writing process. And um, now with the guys that we have in there, like we, we definitely sort of have a, I don't know if it's a completely spoken policy, but kind of an internal <laughs> feeling that, you know, until somebody has been in the band for at least a year or so, you know, to really understand what the sound is that we're going for and, and what our style is, they kind of, you know, just, sit back and and you know use it as like an apprenticeship i guess or something <laughs> to figure out what what this mm -hmm. uh you know what this ship is but um but i've seen uh in everything that we've written over the last year year and a half um and even some of the stuff that was written before but is now being recorded by all the guys in the band there is so much um that each musician brings to the table you know uh drake since moving to to bass i think probably you know as a result of him being a guitarist before you know he's really trying to not just have brain dead you know follow the root type of bass patterns and he he loves like duff mckagan and you know um some of the the cooler like you know uh bass players that that stood out a little bit and really wrote parts instead of just kind of follow the the structure lazily mm -hmm. and uh so he's he's really always pushing to to have cooler parts in there and not just phoning stuff in Donovan um adds so much. I mean, he's, you know, he came out of a, a little bit of a classical guitar background where he was 
you know, he had to play all those crazy shapes and stuff like that. And his ability to nail arpeggios and, and that stuff is, is just fantastic. And he brings a lot of elements live too, especially, um, but it, it just letting him kind of write the parts, you know, giving him the basic framework and then letting him do his thing. Uh, we definitely encourage him to do that whole Keith Richards thing of don't play the same thing, you know, the same way twice even from <laughs> verse to verse or from phrase to phrase. Cause you know, for us, uh, the stuff we fell in love with is, you know, something that's, or at least what I think is more listenable is, is stuff that isn't just you play one riff once and then fly it all over the place in, you know, the digital studio world. I'd rather have him play every single thing, sing every little line and see what happens because then it's worth listening to. It doesn't just sound like you're listening to the same thing over and over and over again, you know, within the framework of the same song, let alone putting it on repeat itself. So I think that that's been a big deal. I, I mean, um, our latest single dead aces even uh i use this as an example um uh for another interview too is uh mitchell he uh he just added this thing i wasn't even paying attention totally but because it's got dead aces kind of got a little wild west theme to it going on uh during the outro he put this little galloping beat that sort of you know sounds like something out of you know an old clint eastwood movie or something and he and he tossed that in there and that was totally him and he does stuff like that a lot just throws in these little flourishes that really really add something to to stick out in the song, you know, that you'll you'll gravitate to. Yes, it sounds very alive and like you are always evolving, which is fantastic. I would say that um although I seen you guys perform maybe four times now, that it's not always the same, which is exciting, but there's also a, a sort of a, you know, you know what to expect and that's fun. And you have um, shared the bill with some really incredible acts here. Um, Last in Line recently at the Hard Rock for their album release party, I believe it was. And then Gilby Clark of Guns N' Roses uh, recently too. And Seven Dust, The Pretty Reckless. And you're going to open for Puddle of Mud, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Um, I'm wondering if your set list is influenced by being on the bill with others or not and how do you choose what you'll play because you have such a great uh pool to draw from oh uh, we definitely pick sets um depending on you know what, what the surrounding acts are or even like the type of audience that we're playing for um you know when we were on tour with seven dust it was a lot of you know a lot of dudes out in the audience and we knew that you know we'll, we'll skip the ballads for that and let's just <laughs> go straight ahead hard rock uh, but it was fun. I mean, they, the uh, the audience was actually really, really cool and really receptive. Um, and it didn't hurt that we had a hot merch girl. So that helped us. Uh, <laughs> That's always a good thing. Helped us along the way. She was probably the only one, uh, only female in the place. But, um, you know, it, it's like for Gilby Clark, um, you know, I, I know how heavily those guys were influenced by some of the old Aerosmith stuff and everything. We've been we've been uh, kicking around trying to get another Aerosmith cover up. We used to do. Um, we used to do train kept rolling. I still don't know why we don't do that anymore. That's been a battle that I've kind of that put was to the a Yardbird <laughs> song originally, right? Yep. Wasn't it Yardbird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we would um we would start uh we do it like how Aerosmith did the second half of theirs. So we just started on the fast paced one and go through. <laughs> that happens about halfway through Aerosmith's uh, version. But yeah, uh, we would do that. We'd done sweet um sweet emotion for a little bit and i'm trying to think oh and we we used to do this song called um sos too bad that nobody knows but i think was a killer song it got overshadowed by some other uh other singles on that record but 
I've always wanted to do rats in the cellar and, you know, we were all out, um, you know, having some drinks and stuff and, and got ourselves all gassed up on, on that idea and then forced it down the throat of the, the couple guys that weren't there. <laughs> and, um, and we ended up doing it. And honestly, it's, what's been really cool is, is seeing both, uh, Mitchell and Drake have been really, really good at, um, elevating their, their vocal performances. Donovan's always been really good at it, but, um, the other guys have really started trying to, to hit those harmonies a lot better and really work on that, which is tough live. Cause you got a lot of other stuff going on. I get to just sing the rest of them have to play too. So, uh, you know, they were able to hit the harmonies in it and it was, it, it, it was a really cool cover. So I think we're actually going to keep that one for puddle of mud, um, in September, but yeah, it's, it's all, it's all based on, you know, sometimes we don't even have a straight set list too, or I'll deviate from the set list, just depending on what's going on in the audience. Like if, you know, if we are, in a uh opening or a direct support slot where it's you know we're in front of a lot of new people you just got to see what that audience is feeding off and you know it, sometimes it's not the right time to slow it down sometimes you got to go hit them with a cover or something to get up pay it attention again and make sure that they're actually you know going to be there and not at the bar when you're playing the songs you want them to hear right right huh well um you have written um a number of incredible songs and i you know, said this before, but I feel like you guys, you know, would fit right in with the seventies and eighties and you really, your influences show, but you've also got your originality, but, um, I'd love to know which song or songs, um, would be the most meaningful to you personally that you've written. I don't even know how to start that question. I I'd say uh, the first, one of the first songs we ever wrote was 151. And that wasn't even really a, a, a proper song, I guess it was, you know, we were out partying, we were doing kind of um, almost like a Weird Al version of uh, of Guns N' Roses Night Train. So we were just kind of singing what what was going on at the party or whatever uh, lyrics over Night Train. And, and um, they, uh, you know, uh, they kept asking us to play that like at, at you know, <laughs> parties. It's, we threw a lot of parties in our apartment <laughs> and we had all the equipment right there. So it was uh-huh. easy enough to just, you know, do like an impromptu set or whatever. So I'd say that that went on for the better part of a year before we're like, maybe we should try to make this thing its own thing. So we started chopping it up and, you know, rewriting the riffs and, you know, a lot of the stuff to it. Uh, but that was that was one of our first songs. And that was um, 151 was both the inspiration and root cause. I think of uh, a lot of the material that we came up with, especially in the early days, we used to go by, you know, because we didn't have any money. There were like five of us living in a little two bedroom apartment. Um and we would go out we could afford i think it was about 20 bucks or 22 bucks or something for a uh a big bottle of bacardi 151 and then we'd lace that with with dr pepper and it would both look and taste like jet fuel so we'd call it jet <laughs> fuel and you know and that but that was enough to get the you know the whole band uh lubricated for the evening and um and then we eventually found out that in uh i think it was in somerville massachusetts they were bottling something called roberto's which was essentially 151 but for 16 dollars. so i'm sure that's had a you know super positive impact on our um on our livers but we used to drink <laughs> all that too so you know and, and 151 like uh we to to this day i think when we come out to it um because it's usually we use it as the opening song if we're going to put it in the set it just brings back so many memories. So, you know, not even uh, the song itself, just like, you know, playing the song brings back all the, you know, the nights in New York city that we would do, or the, um, you know, some of the first tours where there was just, uh, there was a lot going on at some of those first tours and, 
you know, I think we we definitely lose ourselves, especially Alex and myself now, because we're the only two remaining members that were that were there for any of that. That's definitely one that that brings back a lot of memories. But we do, you know, every song that we write, I I can't even think of a song that's not um, written about some specific instance or some you know scenario we got ourselves into in this band. So I think, you know, from night to night, um, depending on what frame of mind I'm in, the different songs will hit a little bit differently for you, for you and have like more meaning because you'll remember what that you know, that situation was about, we don't write fucking truck commercials in this band. We, you know, we write about stuff that actually happened to us right down to the band name. Um, so I think the meaning is, is really pulled out for us live and you'll, you can probably see it on stage. There's certain ones where we're laughing a little bit more than others. And then some of those are written about the, the more um, compromising situations we've gotten ourselves into. But I imagine though, that, you know, over time, you're, priorities evolve and change and you mentioned that you're married and um you have a child right yeah i've got two little boys does that affect your writing at all you know um i don't know it it affects the amount of time you have to write but i I think honestly (laughs) having two little boys is 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 uh easier than than wrangling four um grown-up boys in in a band so well perspective wise it's you know, it, it, at least the little ones like listen to what you say. The rest of the <laughs> the adult ones don't always fall in line so easily. Um, but I, I think uh, more so even than current life situations, because I, like I said, we have, uh, you know, it's almost like two complete eras of this band. And I don't even think we've finished scratching the surface on on the, the Boston era of this band. We still have so many songs from back then that were fragments of songs or, you know, ideas and stuff that you know, we're still tearing up and exploring, um, you know, Chinatown was one of them that we, we put out relatively soon after we moved out here, but dead ace is the, the new track is, you know, kind of, well, it's not kind of, it's, it's basically, you know, an amalgam of all the, the bars and, and, you know, <laughs> uh, drinking establishments <laughs> that we, uh, would hang out in, in Boston, most of which are all gone now. Um, and then that kind of coupled with thinking about, you know, so many of those places that aren't there anymore, the the artists that aren't there anymore that influenced us. Um, I think what I see now more influencing our writing is being out West in the kind of environment where you look outside and it looks like a damn cowboy movie outside here sometimes. Yes. So I do think it's, it's liberated us um, from staying in that more street uh, punky East coast style, which, you know, I think we still have running through our stuff, but it's, it's kind of getting, run through a little bit more of that Western flair that's, that's out here. You know, we have a little bit more, more liberties. There's more, um, more days in the year that you can wear cowboy boots out here, I guess. So <laughs> you'll see, uh, you'll see a lot of like Western elements kind of heading into our songs in the, in the next uh, few singles. And there's definitely the, um, the next album that'll be coming out. Well, I shouldn't say the next album there, the, the next album that's actually going to be released is something called wreckage of youth, which is going to, you know, be a, um, a collection of the last eight singles that we had. So it won't be any new material, but it'll actually be put into album form, uh, how we had always envisioned this, but there just wasn't the incentive to, to release an album. But the one after that is called, um, tentatively Hollywood refugees after all the music industry and, and elements that have been moving out here. Um, they are, actually, not yes, just, not just industry. It's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of California moving out here, but, uh, just so much stuff that we've, we've seen with the, with those guys that are, are moving out here now. Um, and then a lot of the experiences that we've had out West where it's just, you know, um, LA ain't what it used to be, I guess, even, even from eight years ago, when we first moved out here, it's, it's still wildly different. 
So that's going to kind of be something that we'll be exploring. And I think that's more how uh, our, our current situation is, has seeped into the writing process. But who knows? Maybe I'll write songs about Elmo. <laughs> you just might. But let's hope not not yet anyway. Let's take a listen to um, Dead Aces since we've been talking about it so much.
So that was Dead Aces. Um, so I'm wondering, Sean, are there any rituals or routines that you follow before hitting the stage to help you get into the right mindset or physicality for a performance? You know, I, when I was on tour with um, with Adelita's Way, like, you know, Rick would be warming up in the in the bathroom for like a, a half hour. And I commended him for having that kind of a ritual. I, um, I don't have any sort of commitment to anything like that. I think... Uh, you know, we've always just kind of plowed through with, um, I guess, sheer will or something at this <laughs> point. Maybe it's maybe it's not the best approach, but it's it's worked so far. Uh, I guess the closest thing to that is we uh, we've come out to a song by uh, an English um, rock and sort of folk singer um, named uh, Chris Rea, which came about when. I want to say it was maybe like, you know, 2010 or something like that. I was diving like deep into like Leonard Cohen stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got a whole big batch of, of his songs and buried in that was this song uh, by Chris. And it, you know, you'd barely be able to tell the difference. I didn't tell the difference until, you know, years later when I realized that, Oh, this is a different, you know, artist. And it was a, a song called road to hell. And that just kind of, I don't know. It, it, it felt like it, it, um, it, it synthesized our our experience in the music industry and just as a band so we, we would come out to that and i think that kind of if anything just puts you in, in a little bit of the the right mind frame to be on stage but yeah no we're not regimented enough to have any sort of a, a set routine of, of okay. anything better than that <laughs> all right um well how do you stay connected with your fans and what role do they play in shaping your music because you talked about you know, certain vibes that you get from a live audience, but over time, how does your fan base affect you and your music? Well, we've definitely for better or worse been doing a lot more stuff on social media. Um, you know, we've had, uh, we got into that whole reels game on, um, what is that on Facebook and Instagram when it really first started. And, you know, we got millions and millions of views on, on that stuff. And, and the, the feedback was swift and decisive and in some cases, you know, of, of shit that, you know, maybe we should uh, stay away from or stuff that, you know, we wanted to explore a little bit more. Hmm. So we definitely do the fans, um, you know, but, but we have, um, we encourage fans to to take video and stuff live. Cause we, we almost use that, like, uh, I don't know, like a team would use game tape or something to, to watch and see what's working, what doesn't. And, um, and we, we take, what they say after the shows or during the shows, uh, assuming it's not just expletive um, laden, but um, <laughs> it's, you know, there, there's sometimes, you know, because we don't really stick to a set list or at least we're at this stage um, capable of just bouncing to whatever the mood hits. You know, if somebody shouts out a song that we haven't played in a while and, you know, we feel like that's a good idea, then we definitely go into that um and i've listened to a lot we're, we're lucky to have a lot of really good fans and, and friends in the media here too which is which is cool because they you know they review stuff for a living they you know they, you guys are this is what you guys do so when one of you says like hey this this song really feels like you know you guys are stepping into um you know this new territory that sounds even more like you than the the rest of the stuff does, or whatever you know i've had some some feedback like that and and it it makes you think and you you kind of take a look at some of the the stuff you're writing maybe in that sort of light you know you're taking you're taking input from from everywhere the negative the positive all that stuff and and 
you know, we wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have people showing up at the shows or people listen to our music online. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say we necessarily write stuff for the fans, but we're always listening. Now, as I mentioned, Crash Midnight is the special guest act for Puddle of Mud at the Brooklyn Bowl coming up here in Las Vegas pretty soon. So when exactly is that and what's the best way for folks to get tickets? So that's uh, Saturday, September 2nd. You can get tickets. Um, we have the link available on our website, crashmidnight.com. It's probably the the least um, <laughs> the path of least resistance to get to them. Instead of <laughs> it's it's the a great Brooklyn site, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. It goes. It's right at the top of the news section, so that's probably the easiest way to get the tickets. We were um, we were actually supposed to play with Puddle of Mud um, just before the world shut down. We had um, we booked a show for them that. Uh, with them i think for like the spring late spring of, of 2020 or maybe it was like midsummer or something but we booked it long before the shutdown and then when the the world shut down um it became more and more obvious that was not going to happen so this is i guess this is a show about three years in the making oh wow so it should be cool yeah we just played there um with uh with buck cherry and that was really cool brooklyn Bowl is one of our favorite venues out here um we have no no shortage of great venues out here, but uh, Brooklyn Bowl is a really good one. They take great care of us and, you know, their sound and lighting is fantastic and we really like playing there and our fans like going there. So we're, we're going to keep doing it. Awesome. Well, that is going to be a great show. I have no doubt. Um, now we've come to the the end here, Sean, and it's the question that I always ask. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? Well, I guess, um, you know, mo most of the nightmare stuff actually happened on that tour with the Pretty Reckless. If I were to to kind of paint you a picture, the first leg of that, we were touring around in, in what essentially amounted to a um, a traveling tool shed. It oh, was uh, a guy that was that was filling in for us on rhythm guitar at the time had a what he called a Winnebago, but it was essentially a roving tool shed with like tools hanging all off the the side of the. The, you know the interior of of the um the vehicle all the dash panel had been ripped out for some reason uh, i still don't fully understand and he cut a hole in the ceiling too to to use as an escape hatch to go sit on the roof i guess when you parked but didn't really think that through that you know when it rained that that would cause an issue so we were traveling around in that while we were traveling around in that um we had I'm trying to remember how long that run was it was probably a run of like 20 25 shows or something now, the 25 shows, we probably had at least half a dozen uh, sound engineers come up to us after the show, letting us know that the headline act was sabotaging our sound. What? And if, um, yeah. And if half a dozen of them were doing that, you know, were actually had the balls to come tell us, then Lord knows how many nights that was going on. But it was, uh, you know, I we sort of tried to wear it as a, a badge of honor that, you know, we were doing so well that they felt the need to do that. But they were getting a lot of bad press for uh, allegedly singing the tracks or something. I, the, I have no idea what they, what, if anything they were doing, but they were getting some bad reviews of that. And I'm sure that was getting to them. Um, but yeah, that was, that was pretty much probably the most nightmarish thing that, that we dealt with is <laughs> driving around in, in a, a vehicle that was the ticking time bomb and, um, you know, going from show to show and, and, and just, absolutely exhausting ourselves on stage but finding out after the fact that like you know and we never got we got amazing reviews from you know everything we were doing i think especially in contrast to you know what was going on at the end of the night but the um 
but just knowing that we were we were out there giving it our all and somebody was trying to hold us back was something that uh something that i think we still carry a little chip on um to this day so that that's about the worst case scenario you can you can be in as a bad is is somebody trying to you know sabotage what you're doing live yeah but whatever doesn't kill you right (laughs) this is true this is true uh well, uh, you did mention your website, crashmidnight.com, which is fantastic, very easy to navigate, and you can pretty much find everything there. But are you also on social media? Can fans follow you somewhere? Yep, we're all on um, Twitter or X or whatever the hell it is now. Um, right, we're, X. We're on, we're <laughs> on Instagram and uh, and Facebook, and it's all just at Crash Midnight. We make it real easy. But we, we do a lot of stuff on there, and we answer pretty much every message that we can that we catch if we miss any hit us up at uh that our crashman at gmail all right well that is a wrap as they say well thank you sean it was really <laughs> great talking to you and getting to know you a bit better and i will see you on on stage in the future sounds good stacy thank you so much for having me this concludes another episode of the rock and roll nightmares podcast Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.